So if you weren't with us last week, as you've heard, we started a new sermon series called Breaking Through, where we're walking through the first couple chapters of the book of Joshua. And this is where the, 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 the Israelites have been wandering in the wilderness for a generation now. And as the book of Joshua opens, they are on the brink of breaking through into the promised land. Now, this was not a time for any of them to feel like they had arrived, because this was a time of, of renewal, of, of passion, of activity, and of anticipation of what lay ahead as they break through into that new land. And so for us here at, at West Meadows, we're, we're kind of on the brink of, of a new year, of a new ministry season. As we mentioned, this new financial freedom we find ourselves in, being free and clear in the new year. But also on this brink of breaking through into a new vision for the future. And so there is, there, there's a ton for us to celebrate from the past. And there is so much that we need to take time and to remember regarding God's faithfulness, his provision, his protection that has brought us thus far and we believe will take us even further into the future. But we also have an opportunity before us. We also have the opportunity to not forget but also not choose to be defined by the past, whether good or bad to be defined by the past, but instead to have eyes forward, not looking in the rearview mirror, but looking forward to what God is calling us to and has in store for us for the future. So last week as we opened this series, we see that God reaffirmed his commitment to be with his people, the Israelites, as they went into this new season in the days ahead. And he kind of said to them as we summarized last week that, that if fear should appear that they need to find their strength to overcome that. If fear should appear, they need to find their strength and courage in the God who is near and the God who is with them. And so today we're going to continue the narrative. We're going to continue into Joshua chapter 2 where the Israelites start to now make a move into the promised land. But, but they do so, first of all, through the age-old tactic of, of espionage. You don't hear that word very often, espionage. Now, espionage is the practice of spying or using spies to, to obtain certain insider information that otherwise you wouldn't be privy to. Now, we hear about these sorts of things in, for example, political settings where a country may use spies to, to, to gain, to access, maybe even create fake news. Uh, <laughs> or information that would affect a nation or a party, perhaps like an election or something. Uh, we also see espionage and military practices where you steal troop locations, information about secret weapons or nuclear capabilities. We see it in, in business espionage. And, and if we think of business espionage, we might go back to the, you know, the old days prior to technology where it was, it was bellaclavas and flashlights in the middle of the night sneaking through offices, rifling through filing cabinets. Now it just happens online. It just happens in a person's bedroom as they log into your computer and steal your secrets. You know, these, these stories we hear about in news, we hear about them in media, and they make for great movies. A lot of movies are based upon espionage, cloak and dagger kind of tactic type things. And we don't really personally relate to these too well, though outside of news and, and media. But we all know what espionage is like. I, I know we do because all of us remember junior high, right? Where it's like, you know, John, you should go see if Susie likes me, right? That's espionage. Go get that insider information if I should ask Susie out or not, right? Or, or if you're a little bit older, when you had the party lines on the phone, you were talking to your friend on the phone, it's like, well, call John up. I'll just stay on the other line and be quiet. I'll pretend I'm not here. And you can ask him questions for me. <laughs> we can gain the information. 
Nowadays, parents do it where they turn on that find your phone app on their teen's phone so they can track the whereabouts of their kids. <laughs> yeah, it's not a wrong thing to do, parents. We can do that. We're allowed. We own the phones, right? <laughs> no, but in all of these things, these are all attempts for, for outsiders, if you will, to gain insider information so they can break through to the other side of what they're trying to achieve. And so as we look at Joshua chapter 2, we see that the Israelites begin to move towards the promised land. And, and this, this part of the story in Joshua 2 serves to advance the narrative, but, but there's a deeper purpose. There's a deeper purpose in this chapter beyond just advancing the narrative. You see, it's also a story about outsiders trying to break through to the other side. The Israelite spies are outside the promised land looking to break through into that future, into that new land. But as they do that, as they try to break through into that, they also encounter a woman named Rahab who is outside the people of God and wants to break through into that relationship. And so as we open our Bibles to Joshua chapter 2, in this story we see that Joshua puts into practice the same activity as his predecessor Moses had when he stood on the same ground a generation earlier by sending spies into the land to survey what they're about to encounter. Now this time Joshua just sends two guys. And we don't know really who these guys were. We don't know too much about them. But we do know their mission. Their mission was to go and look over the land, in particular the city of Jericho, which was a, a massive fortified city. It was also the very first obstacle that they would have to overcome once they entered the land. Now we're not told their names. We're not told much about these guys. But we can assume this. For such an important mission... Out of the tens of thousands of people that Josh could have chosen to go on this mission, there must have been something unique about them. These must have been the, the elite in ability, the, the elite in commitments, the men of great reputation to be given such an important task. And, and so this, this Navy SEAL team-like duo, they, they, they go through the waters of the Jordan, they sneak across the wilderness and come up upon the city and they slip past the guards. And, and in this covert manner, the first thing they do is... They, they go to a brothel for some odd reason. I don't know if that strikes anybody else curious or odd that such an important mission and, and such elite people. And the first thing we're told when they enter the city is they find themselves in a brothel. Now, we're not told why, but it works out well for them because as they enter the establishment, they meet a prostitute there named Rahab. Now, someone maybe saw them come in or somebody was leaving as they, as they were going to the city because somebody runs and tells the king that these guys are there. And so the king of Jericho is quite upset by this and he sends orders to Rahab to say, you need to hand those guys over to us. Those guys, whether you know it or not, they are dangerous enemy spies who have come to steal our secrets. You need to hand them over to us to be dealt with. But instead, Rahab decides to hide these two Israelite spies. And she puts them up on her roof, and then she sends a message back to the king lying to him, saying, saying yeah, they, I know who you're talking about. They were here, but, but they got what they wanted, and then they left. So the king believes the story that she shares, and he sends all of his king's horses and all the king's men go searching after them. They, they rush through the gates into the wilderness to try and catch them before they cross back over the Jordan to the encampment where the rest of their army is. And as the men and the horses leave the, the city, they slam the gates behind them effectively locking the spies in for the night at the mercy of Rahab, who now wants to strike a deal. 
Now, her motives are unknown at this point, but she soon reveals the reason for her help and her reason for the deceit. She says, I know the Lord has given this land to you. I know that he has given this land to you and that a great fear has befallen upon all the people here. So much so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. She says, we've heard the stories. We know all about you guys. We know how you were enslaved in Egypt, but then your God freed you. We know that when you came up against the Red Sea, he parted the seas. We know that when you got across the seas, he destroyed the armies of Pharaoh. We know that when you battled the kings of Sihon and Og, not weak guys, that you were completely wiping them off the face of the earth. We've heard of all this. We know that we have massive armies. We know that we have large cities and fortified walls, but we also know that we have no security, that we have no sense of peace because of these things. We know that our strength and our courage, all the people in the land, their strength and courage is gone. But then Rahab adds this. She goes, but I've come to believe. I have come to believe that the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now, if you remember our lesson from last week, it's almost as though she's saying to these spies, guys, fear has appeared in the land. Fear has appeared in the land, and we've lost our strength and courage. But while I'm afraid, I know I need to find my strength and courage in the one true God who is near, as she makes this profession of faith in their God. And so in this one encounter, the spies really have gained the insider information they're looking for. They've gained the details that, that the people are quaking, they're, they're trembling in their boots about God and these army that's about to come upon them. But in addition, they've met a woman who knows of their God. News of what has been going on has reached this land ahead of them. And she's professing a belief in God, which is evidence then that God is preparing the way. Before they've even crossed the Jordan, God is already preparing a way for them to come into this land. But then she makes a bold request. She requests that, that when the attack does come, would you please spare my family and I? Which is not a surprising request. I, I think any of us in the same situation would make a similar type of request. But she adds a pivotal statement to it. She doesn't just ask for, for her life and that of her family to be spared. She adds this pivotal statement. She says, show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Now on the surface, this just sounds like a desperate plea. It sounds like she, she's bargaining for the lives of herself and her loved ones. She's trying to leverage her actions. Her, her protection she's given them is trying to be leveraged that she can use it for her own protection. But there's more going on here than just that. And it's revealed in the word kindness that we have in this text. You see, the word kindness in this text, if we were to translate that back to the Hebrew, it's the word hesed. She's saying, as I have shown you hesed, would you show it to me as well? And if we were to look at where else that word is used and what it means, it's the word that is used in reference to God's covenant love to his people, but also the loving kindness they're supposed to show amongst one another. So based upon this confession that, that God is God of heaven and earth, and then the act that she's shown towards these spies to protect them, she's not just asking for her life to be spared. She's asking to become one of them. 
She's asking to become one of them, to be welcomed into the community. You see, she's an outsider who wants to become an insider. Now, whether the spies feel trapped or just charitable, we don't know, but they agree. They agree, but they add this condition. Our lives for yours. So as long as you don't betray us, as long as you keep acting like an insider, as long as you keep acting like you're one of us, the deal's in, in effect. And so they strike the deal. They agree to the terms. She shows them the way out of the city and tells them how to evade capture. But then before the spies leave, they, they establish with her a sign of her protection. They tell her that when the day comes, when the, when the great attack upon Jericho comes, that she needs to bring her entire family inside her home, and then she needs to tie a scarlet cord on the window. And so when the armies of the Lord see this scarlet cord on the outside of the window, they will pass over her home, which is so reminiscent to, to a generation earlier when the Israelites were still enslaved in Egypt. And God was bringing the plagues upon Pharaoh to secure their release. And the plague of the death of the firstborn came. But God said, if you take the lamb's blood and smear that on the doorpost, the angel of the Lord will pass over your home. In similar fashion, they give her instructions so that she is not just being welcomed into the community. She's being welcomed into the promises of God. So having understood all of this, they part ways. The spies hide in the hills for three days, and Rahab ties a cord on her window. After three days have passed, the spies return to camp, and they give the report to Joshua that he has been waiting for, not just a couple of days while they're away, he has been waiting for this report for a generation. What are they going to say this time that they went into the land? But this time the spies come back and they got it right. This time the spies come back and they respond just like Caleb and just like Joshua did a generation earlier when they simply say, we can do it. We can do it because the Lord has given this land into our hands and all the people are melting with fear because of our God. Now, Joshua and the Israelites are greatly encouraged by this. And because they could see that God was not just with them, he was going before them. He was going into the land before them to prepare the land for them. And now they had evidence that God was indeed at work. And is it always reassuring when, when you can find action to confirm words? When, when action follows a promise? It gives you this sense that we've moved from concept, we've moved from idea into reality. You see, the Israelites in the past had heard that this land was promised to them. They knew that God had called them to it. They knew that he was faithful to his promises and they, that he was preparing the land for them, but they hadn't actually seen it yet. It was just this, this idea, it was words up to this point, but now they knew they knew not only that, yes, indeed, there were numerous people. There were great cities. There were walls that were fortified. But they also knew that without God in that land, without God in the lives of those people, they had no peace. Now, a similar thing has been happening around here for us as, as the next team has been doing some, some recon, if you will, into the communities that surround us, into the communities of, of Lewis Estates and Rosenthal and, and Secord, We've been doing some research and learning what is this land that's around us. And, and it's, it's under the category of what we've referred to as our, our local predicament. And we found that in similar fashion, we are surrounded by numerous people. We are surrounded by great neighborhoods. We are surrounded by fortified walls, if you will. 
And I just want to take a brief moment to share some of the results, some of the, the brief information that we've come across on that. There's a more full report that's available, but, but just give you an idea of what is this land that's around us? What have we learned about it? Well, we've learned this. We've learned that the people are numerous. There are over 14,000 people who live in these three neighborhoods. And there's a lot of families. 33%, one in three people that live around us are in the generation next. That means between the age of 35 and 50, roughly. One in three are between 35 and 50. That adds to the idea of how many families and children there are. There's 2,800 children and teens that live, people in 19 and under that live in the community that surrounds us. And 58% of those kids, about 1,500 of them, are under the age of 10, which means a lot of elementary age students. The people around us are numerous. That's what we are surrounded by as far as people go. But we're also surrounded by a great community, by, by great neighbors, by these, these strong cities that exist. We've, we've seen that community leagues have continued to grow and they've continued to grow stronger. But also there's five schools when it's all said and done that will be open in these three neighborhoods. There was one, they've opened two more this year. There's, there's a few more planned for the years ahead. And when they open, they're almost at capacity already, which means they're stretched for resources. They're stretched for space. But as we've contacted these schools, they're also open to our presence as a church, working with them through, through clubs and through service projects. They're open to the fact that we are in the community as well. The community leagues have a few things that go on throughout the year with winter carnivals and pancake breakfasts and different meetings and moving in the park, you remember from last fall? But they need volunteers. They need space. They need buildings for events and places to hold meetings because there's a real lack of that within our community. There's a lack of gathering places, of social space, especially in the wintertime, that perhaps we could be a stakeholder in some of those things. But then there's these fortified walls. There's numerous people. There's great cities and teams and schools and things going on. But there's also these fortified walls. What do I mean by that? I mean that there are symbolically idols that exist within this land. Things that, that people have placed their trust and their confidence in. Things that people have allowed to consume their time and consume their attention. And some of these idols we can identify as, as safety, as security. This is a very safe, secure neighborhood. Low crime rate, it attracts people for that purpose. There's a sense of prestige in the area. A community that is relatively middle to upper class, built around a golf course, has a sense of prestige and status that goes along with it. These are some idols that exist in people's lives. And then as we did our research, we also came across this phrase, which we thought so perfectly summarized what we are learning about these wonderful people that we live around, is that they are attracted towards simply sophisticated, is a phrase that summarizes the motivations and, and what they're seeking to attain, to be simply sophisticated in all that they do. Now, amidst all this, if you were to look up the Facebook profiles of many of the people who live in this area, you would find what you find on most Facebook profiles, a lot of happiness, contentment, fulfillment. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because it is a good place to live. It's a good life to live in this neighborhood. But there's something beneath that that I think all of us are aware of, is that there are still problems with loss. There are still situations of abuse. There is still loneliness and depression and addictions that exist throughout all of these people who have this facade of happiness at times. And we also know this, that anybody, regardless of where you live, that if you are living a life without Jesus Christ, 
There's a spiritual void in that life. There's an emptiness that might be tried to fill with some of these things that exist in their lives. But there's an emptiness. It's, it's like trying to hold the beach in your hand. The sands just slip through. It's like trying to fill up hunger with water. It just doesn't last. It doesn't satisfy. We know that exists in everyone's life regardless of who they are. If they don't have Jesus in their life. And so that means that we know that among the thousands of people who live in this community, West Meadows is the only church. We are the only church in this area, part of this community. We are the people of God with that insider information, if you will, that allows to bring hope, that allows to bring fulfillment to those people who are aware of that spiritual void that exists within them. We have the ability because of our experiences and knowledge of Jesus Christ to help those who are outside the family of God come inside. And in that lies a sense of calling, a sense of purpose, a sense of vision, and I hope also a sense of urgency. Because our mission, should we choose to accept it, is to take that insider information we have about Jesus Christ out to the world in order that they may know him personally in their lives so that they themselves could come to be inside the kingdom of God. Now, I personally don't like these insider-outsider labels. But there is a reality that those who are with Christ and those who are outside of Christ, there's a distinction that exists there. But I want us to remember this. That at the end of the day, without Jesus Christ, all of us are outside the kingdom of God. That's something that all people share in common. Those of us who are sitting here, those people throughout history, before we knew Jesus Christ, before we had that personal relationship with God, we were separated from him. And one thing that we can also learn from this story of Rahab is that what really matters to God, what really determines who's kind of inside and outside the kingdom of God is not about how cunning or how scheming a person is. It's not about ethnicity or profession or past rights or wrongs. You see, in the end, what it comes down to is about believing trusting and submitting our life to the will of God. To understand that he is the God of heaven and earth. That he is the one who goes before us. He is the one who has called us, prepared for us, provides and protects for us, and he does that best and most so through Jesus Christ who he sent to us. Paul talks about this. Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, where he says, therefore remember that formerly you were separated from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship. You were foreigners to the covenants, the promises. You were without hope. You were without God in this world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You see, at one time, all of us were separated from Christ. We were all excluded from citizenship. We were all outsiders. We were all foreigners to the promises. All of us at one time in our life were living without hope because we were living without God. But because of Jesus Christ, we have been brought near to God so that we can become citizens of heaven. Therefore, whenever we deal with people, whether they be inside the walls of this church, inside the walls of another church, or if they be outside in the community, whenever we do that, we need to do so with humility. Because as Paul points out, on our own, left to our own devices, there is nothing about us that makes us worthy. 
There's nothing about us that makes us worthy to be counted as these people who are inside the family of God. It is simply by the grace of God and the mercy of Jesus Christ that we are granted that status. So there's no basis for superiority. There's no basis for exclusivity or elitism. What there is room for, though, however, is for us to take our experiences, for us to take our knowledge about Jesus and the difference that he makes in our lives, and to go from the inside out. To go from the inside out with that knowledge. And this isn't just accomplished through, through an inner faith. It's not just accomplished through words of truth. It's accomplished through action. We read this passage earlier in the service today where, where James, Jesus' brother, talks about this in his letter when he says, what good is it, my friends, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? He gives the example of, of a brother or sister who's without clothes or without food and, and a person walking up to them and simply going, be well. Be well. I hope that works out for you. Keep warm and well-fed, but then just walks away and does nothing about the physical needs. And he challenges with the question, he goes, well, what good is that? What good is it just to express the words? Because in that situation, to that person, they're thinking to themselves, it's not good enough to just sit and talk and study and contemplate about what it would look like to feed me, to what it would look like to house me. It might be a good starting point, but, but that in itself must move to the point of being actionable. It must be put into practice then, because you may have heard the saying, talk is cheap, but action will cost you something. Action will cost you something. I, I heard the story once of, of a father who, it was an analogy that another pastor had used, uh, a father who had asked his daughter to go clean her room. And so she went upstairs to her room and she closed the door, and after about an hour, he went in to check on her. And, and he opened the door, and, and the room was pretty much exactly the way it was when he had made the first request. And, and he says, what, what are you doing? And she goes, well, I came out to my room and I sat down and, and I started really thinking about the steps involved in cleaning my room. So then I got a pen and paper. I thought I better write these down. So then I wrote down all the steps involved. But there were some areas I didn't quite understand how to fold a certain type of shirt. So I, so I, called, I called Jennifer and she got her list out and we compared lists. And we talked about it. And you know, Dad, we even prayed about it. Jennifer and I, we even prayed about it. She'd be proud of us. We even prayed about it. And so we have got a plan in place on how we're going to clean this room. How satisfied is the father? <laughs> At the end of the day, his request is still unmet. They've danced around it, <laughs> but they haven't actually gone out and, and executed it yet. You see, in order to fulfill the mission that's placed before us, it's going to require more than just intentions. There's a time of planning and talking, and we got to go through that season. But it does come a point where it needs to become activated. It comes to a point where we need to become active stakeholders in the people that we've been called to serve. Now, for the Israelites, this started to get real for them a little while after the story. You see, it's not too long in the distant future where Rahab would eventually come to live among them. Up to this point in the story, they've made a promise to her. They said, yes, if you keep your end of the bargain, we'll keep ours, and we will count you as one of us. We will preserve your life and the life of your family. But along with that means that she would one day come to live among them. And that's when it moves from talk to reality. That moment would come where the deal struck would go beyond words and would cost them something. Now, the Israelites up to this point in their journey have been really focused kind of inward because they've been wandering the desert for 40 years and it's just been them. No one new has been added. They've been very careful to, to keep that, 
that community the same. But now, for the first time, an outsider is being added to the mix. Now, they all know things. They all know things like the language and, and the customs. They know the meaning of the festivals. They, they know the songs that they sing. They know how to worship in the system that God had established with them. But Rahab is this foreigner who is coming in, and she's not foreign just by ethnicity, but, but in all manners of what it means to live among the Israelites. It would be like if I picked up one of you and then blindfolded you and flew you over to, say, Siberia and just dropped you off and said, now go live. You would have no idea how to access food, medical aid, how to get housing, education for your kids. Where do you find a job? How do you pay your taxes? You wouldn't know any of that. You'd have no idea. Now, over time, those things could be taught to you. Over time, those things could be taught to Rahab. She could come to learn the customs and the language and, and how the people interacted with each other. But of greater concern is that her presence was a threat to culture. You see, when the day came that Rahab actually joined the Israel camp, how do, you, how do you think that went? How do you think people were feeling and what they were thinking? And I'm sure there were probably some of the, the kind of the religious purists who wanted to keep it the same, who were scorning the spies for even making a deal with a Canaanite in the first place. There were some who probably didn't want to accept her. They would simply tolerate Rahab and hope the day would come when she would migrate to another country. We'll just tolerate her for the time being. I imagine others who would, who would ask the question, well, who's she going to stay with? She's not part of my tribe. Who's she going to stay with? Is she going to get a piece of the territory promised to me? And then there's the moms and the wives who are probably not too sure about having a prostitute in camp and the difference that's going to make for the morality. You see, we know from our own situations as well that the more people you add and the greater the diversity they bring with them, the greater the change becomes. We know this through different seasons of life. When you get married, you add a person to the family and things change. When you have a child, things change. When you have a small group, let's say, and a new person comes to join your small group, things change. If you have a team at work, a study group at school, a, a team that you play on, when a new person comes in, it brings difference. It, it, it brings a unique dynamic to the team that didn't exist before. Cultural change is very real when people are added to the group. And some will embrace it, some celebrate it, get excited by it, but there's others who, who tend to push back and want to defend the status quo. And honestly, I think this is one of the greatest challenges for churches who are looking to move inside out. And we need to be careful that we don't automatically equate change and different with bad and evil. Because not all breakthroughs are. Think of it last week. I opened the series last week giving you some examples of different breakthroughs throughout history that have made our lives better. That have actually been beneficial to not just us, but to the human race even. You know, the different... Breakthroughs that happen in our relational lives and in the scientific world, in the medical community. Professional breakthroughs that happen for us. Breakthroughs in church history, for example, as well. If you think about past church revivals that have existed, there's been a breakthrough of the Holy Spirit that has brought incredible change. But then also consider the teachings of Jesus Christ himself, which brought incredible change as he broke through into the world, simply through his presence and his teaching. Quite often, the change that he brought through his presence and his teaching was what put him at odds with, with the Pharisees. And, and I think often of, of the example of when Jesus was eating with, with sinners and tax collectors, when he was meeting with that group of people, and some Pharisees saw him, and they, and they got offended. And they said, look at that out. Look at those outsiders. Why is Jesus eating with them? 
You see, it was a violation to their customs. It was a violation to the culture they had established. They, they were kind of saying, what's he doing? We don't do it that way here. We don't eat with outsiders. What if somebody saw me doing that? But here's the reality of that scenario. You see, while the Pharisees thought they were on the inside, they were the ones standing outside looking through the window. You see, they were the ones who were outside who had not been invited to the party. And not that they even wanted to go to the party, but the more important fact here was that they had lost relevance. They had lost opportunity to impact the lives of those people that they labeled as sinners. Jesus, however, had broken through. He had broken through to the other side and was having an impact upon their lives and was setting an example for us as well. Because in the end, Jesus didn't just hang out with outsiders. In the end, he actually hung upon the cross with outsiders. If you remember that, that on either side of him was a criminal. One who professed belief in Jesus Christ and was with him in paradise that very day. Again, revealing that there is nothing within us that qualifies us for any sort of label like that. It is simply placing our trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Because it's not about who you are, where you're from, what you know, who you know, what you have done. Instead, what matters to God is believing, trusting, and submitting to his presence and will for your life. Even if it's in the final moments as you hang on a cross beside Jesus Christ. See, our mission, if we choose to accept it, is to take that information, that experience that we all have about Jesus Christ, the hope that he brings, and take that to the outside world so that they may come to know him personally and become inside the kingdom of God. If you thought, think about it, the growth of the kingdom of God, the growth of a church, it presumes outsiders. It presumes outsiders by necessity. It presumes that people who are not currently part of a group, of a collective, hearing about God, who is the God of heaven and earth, and then placing their faith in him. And then when that person allows God to come in and transform their life, who knows what's possible at that point? When God can take a life of somebody who is so far on the fringes of the outside world and bring them into his community, bring them into his kingdom, who knows what can happen? For example, as we finish the story of Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute who was asked, who asked to become an insider because her story is not over. You see, the last we hear about her is shortly after the defeat of Jericho. And spoiler alert, but she survives. She and her family survives. Joshua brings her into camp. And the last thing we're told in Joshua chapter 6 is that, and she lived among the Israelites to this day. That's the last thing we hear in the Old Testament about her. But then she makes a reappearance in the New Testament. You see, she makes a reappearance as a person who is championed for her faith. James continues the passage, as we heard earlier, this passage where he talks about faith being put into action. He sets Rahab up as an example, as one who is considered righteous because she put her faith in action in protecting the spies. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, includes her in the annals of faith and righteousness alongside people like Noah and Abraham and Moses because of her faith in action. And then in the Gospel of Matthew, we learn that what ended up happening to Rahab is that when she came into the camp, she married a man by the name of Salmon. And Rahab and Salmon had a son. And the son's name was Boaz, who would go on to marry Ruth. Ruth and Boaz would go on to be the great-grandparents of King David. Which also means that Rahab is part of the family line of Jesus Christ himself. 
You see, this once crafty Canaanite prostitute who starts off on the outsides as an outsider in more ways than we can possibly count ends up as a member of the family line of David and an ancestor of the Messiah. The outsider becomes the consummate insider. Who knows what is possible with God when he's allowed to come into a person's life, when they hear the truth of Jesus Christ, when they believe it, when they accept it, when they allow him to transform them, and when they're welcomed into community. Who knows what's possible? So as I close today, I want to leave you with a few questions to consider. First question. Who do you know that needs Jesus in their life? Who perhaps hasn't had that relationship with? Who is it in your life that you have information about the difference Jesus can make that you could share with them so that they could come into the kingdom of heaven? Who is that person? Maybe it's somebody in this community around us. Maybe it's somebody in your home, at work, at school, on a team, in your own neighborhood where you live. Who is that person? And what would it look like to take the risk to share that information with them? Second question I wanted you to consider is this. How could we or you put our faith into action? I don't just mean going home and, and, and thinking about this. I mean, if you have some ideas, I want you to call me. I want you to email me. Call me and, and buy me lunch. I'm always happy to go for lunch. <laughs> Take me for coffee. Take Ryan or Luke out. Give them a call. Send them an email. If you have an idea on how you as yourself or we as a church could make a move out and to start actually moving into these stakeholder-type activities in this community or in your neighborhood. We want to know about it. Now, two things about that. Number one, we've already started receiving some. And I want to receive yours and add them to the pile. So we can't possibly say yes to everything. But we want to know about them. But also, we're not going to just hand this off to the staff so that you have an idea that the staff go do. This is about all of us. We all need to be involved. We all need to be making that sacrifice of perhaps time, of resources, of energy to go out and do this together. Then third question. Are you open to embracing change so that more people can come into God's kingdom? We don't know exactly what that's going to be yet. We don't know exactly what changes time will tell as we move further and further along this journey. But I can tell you this, that as we've talked about, as we add people, things change. In order to reach those people, sometimes things need to change. We need to look at doing things a little differently. I don't know exactly what that is yet, but are we open to the possibility? Because if we are, who knows what God can do, not just in us, not just through us, but around us, to the world he's called us to.